This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I am your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me, as always, is the president of The Witness, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Blue Check Verify himself, Jamar Tisby. What's going on, brother? Hey, man, I could not be more thrilled about just all the stuff that God is doing through The Witness and past the mic and the exceptional guests that we've been able to get on lately. It's it's just been a thrill. And I think our listeners are going to be just as excited. Yes, it is. Uh, we have an amazing conversation for you guys uh, today. And we're recording it so quickly that there's going to be a little bit different setup. So if you're a little echo or something, look, we scrambled to get this recording to you guys as quick as we possibly could. And our guest, Jamar, is none other than Mr. Brian Stevenson. Bruh. 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 That's right. That's all we can say. Bruh. He wrote the book Just Mercy, A Story of Justice and Redemption that was published in 2014. He is a uh, public interest lawyer and specializes in literally saving lives, getting people who are wrongly convicted, unjustly convicted, off of death row. He's argued in front of the Supreme Court. He's won pretty much every award there is to win, <laughs> right? <laughs> including a MacArthur Genius Grant. He's got 26 honorary doctorates at this point. Wow. Um, a very accomplished man, to say the least. But I think we were both really intrigued by, you know, what makes him tick in terms of right. his faith. Absolutely. And and we should also mention that he's the founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative, which is an organization based in Montgomery, Alabama. And EJI has helped to provide, as you mentioned, uh, Jamar, justice for over 125 wrongfully condemned death row prisoners. And right now they're working on a project that you'll hear about in the conversation called the Memorial to Peace and Justice also known as the National Lynching Memorial. And it was such a privilege and amazing honor to have Brian Stevenson on the podcast with us. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with him here on Pass the Mic. Brian Stevenson, it is an honor to have you here with us on Pass the Mic. Thank you, sir. It's great to be with you. My privilege. Now, before we get into the deep and important things, I wanted to ask you something just to get to know you a little bit better. When you're not pushing for justice, which consumes so much of your time, which you have so many responsibilities, is there any book that you're reading, a show or a movie that you're watching, maybe an album that gives you life that you're listening to, that you're really excited about? What's the wind down look like for you? (laughs) Well, you know, I I grew up in a very musical family, and one of the great comforts I feel uh, that I was given as a child was kind of being surrounded by by music. And so about 20 years ago, I, I mean, I was living in these little tiny apartments my whole career, but about 20 years ago, I said, you know what? I need a piano because I grew up playing mm. in church. I grew up playing in, in 
um, for groups and all of that kind of stuff. So I, I bought a house so I could get a piano. Wow. And uh, I do enjoy spending time uh, with an instrument like that because when you're making music, um, for me at least, it just gets me completely out of all the things that I'm worrying about and stressing mm-hmm. about. It just takes me to a different place. And exercise can't do that. And uh, other forms of, of kind of passive listening can't do that. But for me, um, you know, creating space to, 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 to make music in, in my own quiet little space, you know, my own little living room uh, is a, is a great comfort for me. And I'm re- grateful, uh, that, uh, I was surrounded by musical people my entire life. Mr. Stevenson, I think Tyler and I, as uh, black men living in the Deep South, feel this kind of solidarity with you um, as as somebody who lives in Alabama. We're all used to sort of um, people or events happening that just make you scratch your head and say, what is going on in America? And right now, Alabama is 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 sort of on the radar for a lot of people in terms of politics. So, you know, uh, for the past year or so, it's been Jeff Sessions and and now recently it's it's Roy Moore. Can you kind of give us your assessment of politics in Alabama right now and how that might, in fact, actually be a microcosm of, of what's going on more broadly in the United States? Well, I do think that the reality, the social reality, the political reality, the economic reality, um, the cultural reality of life in deep south states like Alabama is not well understood. Um, in many ways, uh, the legacy of slavery and lynching and segregation is evident everywhere. Um, we have some of the highest rates of incarceration in the country. Uh, you can't go anywhere in a state like Alabama without encountering the iconography of the Confederacy. I live in Montgomery, a city that uh, prides itself as the cradle of the Confederacy. In the state of Alabama, Jefferson Davis's birthday is a state holiday. Confederate Memorial Day is a state holiday. We don't have Martin Luther King Day. We have Martin Luther King slash Robert E. Lee Day. The two largest high schools in Montgomery are Robert E. Lee High and Jefferson Davis High. They're 99% black. We have no African-Americans on our appellate courts. Uh, The prisons are 63% black. And so there is this day-to-day reality that reflects our history of racial inequality, and it's as if um, it's just accepted. It's just the way it is. And in many ways, when Alabama makes national news, other people begin to see things that say that make them say, "Wait a minute, what's going on there?" And for me, that's 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 gratifying. Uh, the state constitution of Alabama still prohibits black and white kids from going to school together, and that's because you can't change the state constitution without a statewide referendum. And so the language that was put in the state constitution to make sure that black and white kids never go to school together, which was in reaction to Brown versus Board of Education, is still there. Because in 2004, when people tried to get that language out of the state constitution, the majority of people in the state voted to keep it in. And then in 2012, when they tried again, an even larger majority voted to keep it in. And so when you're hearing stories about Jeff Sessions and his efforts to punish and target uh, recently enfranchised black people in the 1970s after they finally got the right to vote. And when you hear stories about uh, resistance to enforcing Supreme Court decisions on marriage equality or on integration, and when you read about 
Alabama asking the U.S. Supreme Court to strike down the Voting Rights Act, an act that they never embraced and never supported, what you're seeing is, I think, a manifestation of this history of racial inequality that we have yet to confront. And so these elections and these moments when you when you get into the public sphere, the national sphere, are very, very illuminating. But I think you're right. I think this is a microcosm of all of America. I don't think there's any place in America where we have honestly dealt with our history of enslavement or, or, or lynching or segregation. And I think everywhere in America, we are haunted by that history. There is a smog in the air that we all breathe in. It's gotten inside the church, it's gotten inside schools, it's in businesses, and it compromises our ability to be human with one another, to be just with one another. And that legacy of of racial bias and that political comfort we have created with tolerating that legacy is part of what I think makes living in this region uh, challenging at times, but also necessary, because we're not going to save America if we don't save spaces in places like the Deep South, where that legacy is so painful and so raw and so evident. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a really challenging time in this country because I, you know, it's amazing to me in 2008, you had people talking about how we're living in a post-racial society. Nobody's saying we're post-racial anymore. <laughs> right. I mean, we're talking about banning people because of their religious identity and and demonizing a whole nation, uh, um, uh, Mexico, and we're talking about uh, lifting up the good things that the Klan and the Nazis do. It just reveals how much work I think still needs to be uh, confronted, done in this country uh, to overcome this tragic history that we have uh, of racial bias. Well, I, not only do I think you understand these dynamics better than most, but you're able to communicate them very powerfully in in a moving way, whether that's through the the written word uh, in your book, Just Mercy, or even just conversing with people like you are now. And to me, it, it, it seems like you have understood the power of story. You you yeah. grasp the gravity of narrative. And I'm just curious, like, wh- wh- when was that realization for you? And sort of what's your approach to articulating these truths in a way that re- really impact people? Well, yeah, that's funny. I mean, growing up in the African-American community, uh, I think we are indirectly being educated about the power of narrative all the time. You know, in the black church, you, you can't spend time there without hearing a story that's designed to illuminate some truth about life. And uh, my grandmother was the daughter of enslaved people, and her father raised her, telling her stories about slavery. And she would share those stories with her mother, with my mother, her daughter, and she would share those stories with me. And so ever since I'm a, I was a little boy, I heard my mother's, my, my mother, my grandmother, my elders telling me stories about this life that they had survived, they had overcome, they had endured. And I just think that narrative is powerful in changing hearts. You know, I, I, and, you know, you hear this being discussed, oh, well, we can't worry about changing hearts and minds, we can only change laws, we can only change, um, you know, policies and practices. And I think we are where we are in this country because we haven't engaged in that heart and mind struggle, which narrative is designed uh, to advance. And because of that, I think we have to engage in narrative battle. We have to spend more time crafting the words that help people move from where they are to where they need to be, that do change hearts and minds. And, 
you know, when I look at history, I, I, I see us winning some things that should have created more progress than they did, but we lost the narrative battle. I actually think the North won the Civil War, but the South won the narrative war. Mm-hmm. They were never required to repent from white supremacy and the, the, uh, the ideology of, 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 of racial hierarchy. And because of that, we then have 100 years of disenfranchisement that follows the Civil War. Uh, we won an end to lynching with impunity, but the lynchers won a narrative battle. They were never required to, to be held accountable for, for barbaric, torturous violence that mm. was uh, projected on black people who were pulled out of their homes and burned burned alive and hanged and forced out of their regions. Uh, we won passage of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, but it was the segregationists who won the narrative battle because they were never required to repudiate and reject uh, segregation or war, segregation forever. And so what we saw happening was a resegregation uh, created through mm-hmm. private schools and, and practices. And, and there wasn't some idea that segregation is so fundamentally wrong that we can never do it again. And now we're living at a time where I think there's a presumption of dangerousness and guilt that gets assigned to black and brown people. So when you see these incidents of police violence that are so disruptive in the black community and so devastating mm-hmm. to people of color, there's a comfort level, there's a tolerance uh, with that violence that, that I think is occasioned by our failure to, to deal with the narrative struggle. So part of the reason why you know, we're doing some of the things we're doing at the Equal Justice Initiative in terms of building a museum and building a memorial and putting up markers and, you know, I wrote a book and I'm thinking about how to get more people to see the things that I see is because I really want to turn a corner on this narrative struggle. And I do it because I really do believe that every human being, black, white, brown, no matter where you live, uh, wants to be free. And we're not Mm. going to be free if we're constrained by these narratives that, uh, that try to teach us that some people aren't as good as other people because of their color or because of their national origin, or because of their language skills, or because of their education, or because of their wealth. And breaking down those barriers strikes me as something we have to do at the policy level and the, and the uh, uh, legal level and, and laws and all of that stuff. But we also have to do narratively. And, and um, if I have any strength at all, it was given to me by my grandmother, who, who uh, was the daughter of enslaved people, by my mother, who went into debt to buy books when I was a little mm. boy, because she felt the power of words was worth that investment uh, by people who held me up when it was time to go to college. And so, yeah, I really do believe in that. I think that, uh, that, that we should take seriously the calling uh, to impact the hearts and minds of people, some, including people who are hostile, people who don't understand, mm-hmm. people who are oppositional uh, to the things that we hold dear. Now, your latest project, you mentioned it in that previous answer, is establishing the Memorial to Peace and Justice, also referred to as the National Lynching Memorial. I have to ask you, what was that light bulb moment that grabbed you and told you we have to create this memorial and it didn't let you go? Because you strike me as a man who once you get locked into something, there's a tenacity and a a determination and a motivation that you're not going to let it go until it's done. So what was that light bulb moment for you? Well, you know, I appreciate that question. I, you know, I'm a product of Brown versus Board of Education. I grew up in a community where black children couldn't go to the public schools. And lawyers came into our community and made them open up the public school 
Uh, and that's how I got to high school. That's how I got to college. That's how I got to law school. So I believed wow. in the law. I believed in representing people and achieving, you know, an end to discrimination and bias through litigation, through law. And then in 1987, uh, I was working on a case called McCleskey versus Kemp. It was a death penalty case uh, challenging racial bias in the administration of the death penalty. Mm. And what the Supreme Court had said was death is different. We cannot tolerate bias and discrimination. In 1972, in a case called Furman versus Georgia, they actually struck down the death penalty. And then in 1976, they restored it because Southern legislature said, no, we have to have the death penalty. And when the NAACP Legal Defense Fund said, no, it's still going to be bias and discrimination, the U.S. Supreme Court said, we're not going to presume that without evidence. And so McCleskey, uh, 12 years later, was the case where the evidence had been assembled and it was taken to the Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court was told that you're 11 times more likely to get the death penalty if the victim is white than if the victim is black. Mm. You're 22 times more likely to get the death penalty if the defendant is black and the victim is white. And no matter what combination of variables Georgia came up with, race of the victim was the greatest predictor of who got the death penalty. And the United States Supreme Court reviewed that case. They accepted the evidence of bias. And then the court ruled in favor of the state of Georgia and keeping the death penalty for two reasons. The first thing they said was, if we deal with racial bias in the administration of the death penalty, it's going to be just a matter of time before lawyers start complaining about racial disparities for drug crimes and property crimes and misdemeanor <laughs> crimes. Yeah. Wow. And Justice Brennan, in his dissent, ridiculed the court's analysis as, quote, a fear of too much justice. Wow. And in many ways, he was right. The court was basically saying this problem is too big for us. But the second thing the court said was a certain quantum of discrimination, a certain amount of racial bias in the administration of the death penalty is, in the court's opinion, inevitable. And that's the word they used to characterize those results. And I thought about that based on my own life. And if the Supreme Court in the 1950s had said that racial segregation in education is inevitable, white parents don't want their kids going to school with black kids, black families don't have the resources to go to these public schools, I wouldn't be talking to you today. But they said it was unconstitutional. Hmm. And its unconstitutionality made it not inevitable. And it became clear to me that our court had abandoned this commitment uh, to equal justice under law, which is engraved on the outside of the U.S. Supreme Court. And I kept asking myself, why? Why would they do that? And I kept working on cases, and I had innocent black clients who were wrongly convicted, sentenced to death, and I would have the evidence of innocence, and it was so clear, but it would be so hard to get courts to respond to that. Uh, Anthony Ray Hinton, a client of mine, spent 30 years on death row for a crime he didn't commit, Mm. and I couldn't get anybody to take that seriously. And it became clear to me in the midst of that that the reason why our courts aren't protecting the rights uh, of, of people of color, of people who are poor, of people who are disfavored, is that they've gotten comfortable with this idea that bigotry and bias isn't that bad. It's just something we have to accept. And I think that reflected a, a lack of understanding, a lack of awareness about just how horrific uh, our history of racial inequality actually is. And that's when I decided we've got to start actually talking about slavery. We've got to start talking about the genocide that took place when white settlers came to this continent and we slaughtered millions of native people. Hmm. We've got to talk about the terrorism, which is what lynching was. Lynching wasn't just a crime. It was racial terrorism. It forced Mm -hmm. six million black people uh, to flee. And and the demographic geography of this nation was shaped by lynching. The black people in Cleveland and Chicago and Detroit 
didn't go to those communities as immigrants looking for new economic opportunities. They went to those communities as refugees and exiles from terror in the American South. And because we don't understand and appreciate what happened, even during civil rights, and I'll be honest, I think we've gotten too celebratory when we talk about civil mm. rights. I hear people okay. talking All about right. the civil rights movement, and it sounds like a three-day carnival. You know, Oof. day one, Rosa Parks didn't give up her seat on a bus. Day two, Dr. King led a march on Washington. Mm. And day three, we changed all the laws and racism was over. Wow. And it would be great if that was our history, but you and I know that's not our history. And we haven't actually talked about what we did to the African-American community that's when it. we said for decades, you can't vote just because you're black. You can't mm. go to school because you're black. And so that history became, for me, a priority. Retelling the story, getting us closer to understanding that story. And I went to the Holocaust Memorial, and I went to that memorial in Washington. And it's fascinating to me that we have a Holocaust Memorial in this country, even though the Holocaust happened on another continent. And I think it's appropriate. But when I got through that memorial, at the end of it, I was able to say, like so many before me, never again, never Mm. again should we tolerate this kind of violence and this kind of genocide and this kind of abuse. And then it became clear to me that we haven't created spaces in this country where you look at the history of slavery and lynching and segregation, and you are compelled to say, never again. And because we haven't been compelled to say never again, we are experiencing again and again the manifestations of that history. And so for me, it became crucial to begin talking about memorializing and addressing and confronting this history uh, in cultural spaces that are designed to provoke that instinct that says never again. Wow. Now, you you even mentioned uh, previously that at the memorial, you wanted the specific counties where the lynchings happened to claim some of these floating columns and put them in public places. And when I heard that, it, it really rocked me because there is a famous site that is at the heart of, of my city, my hometown, Pensacola, Florida, where a lynching happened. And uh, two men were lynched very publicly. And it's a place that we pass by all the time. And many people have no idea about the history of that particular racial terror. And and what might happen as counties start to claim these columns? What is your hope and what is your desire that that takes place in that moment that where they claim their history? I think I hope it will create a consciousness that makes us more committed. Uh, to eliminating racial bias. Uh, I mean, if you go to Berlin, Germany, you can't go 100 meters without seeing stones that have been placed next to the homes of Jewish families that were abducted during the Holocaust. They have the Holocaust Memorial, and they want everyone to go to the spaces that have been dedicated to recovering from the legacy of the Holocaust. In Rwanda, uh, everybody will insist that you go to the Genocide Museum. In South Africa, there's an apartheid museum. There are spaces dedicated so no one forgets. But in this country, we don't actually talk about slavery. We don't talk about lynching. You know, know, there aren't a dozen slavery museums. There aren't spaces that force these communities to, to think about what has happened there. And I think it just keeps us from dealing honestly uh, with that legacy. So, yes, we're going to have a monument for every county in America where lynchings took place. We're going to have the names of those lynching victims. And then we're going to have a replica of those monuments in a field surrounding our memorial. And we are going to be urging people in those communities to come and claim their monument, take it back, and put it in a place where everybody in that community has Mm -hmm. to see those names and reflect on that history. 
And for us, it's a way of pushing forward this notion of truth and reconciliation. And I really do believe that we are living in a nation that would benefit from a commitment to truth and reconciliation. And my only caveat is that when we talk about truth and reconciliation, we have to acknowledge that truth and reconciliation is sequential. A lot of people want the reconciliation without the truth. Mm. Ooh, come on. If, if you don't commit yourself to truth-telling first, you can't get to reconciliation. In the church, we're told that it's only through confession, it's only through acknowledgement of the things that we've done wrong that we can actually experience the kind of redemption and restoration and recovery that is offered to all of us. And I feel the same way when it comes to confronting this past. And so for me, these monuments create an opportunity of truth-telling where people can begin to kind of struggle with all that is represented by seeing the names of these people who were tortured and brutalized while others cheered literally on the courthouse lawn, in public spaces. Churches let out early to attend the lynchings to celebrate yeah. that spectacle of violence. And what does that mean for the soul of a nation, for the, for the consciousness mm. of a community when we don't talk about it, when we don't oh. address it? You know, and I'm not interested, people sometimes say, oh, you're talking about these things, you just want to punish America for its past. I have zero interest in punishing communities for this past or for this history. I'm not interested in punishment. I really am interested in liberation. I want us to get to yes. redemption and say restoration that. and reconciliation, rehabilitation, all of those things. But we can't get there if we're unwilling to tell the truth about the things that we have done wrong. And so for me, this is an opportunity for people in communities like Pensacola, uh, communities all across this country to say, you know what, we, we need to engage in claiming our monument and starting this process of, of truth and, and reconciliation. You know, I do parole hearings and my clients go before parole boards and every parole board says, look, we're not going to let you out if you're unwilling to acknowledge your crime and express your remorse. And mm -hmm. the truth of it is that they just don't trust putting people back out on the street if they've committed a crime and they're unwilling to acknowledge the wrongfulness of their crime. And I understand it. I get it. Uh, but the same is true for us. Uh, we are living in communities that are the sites of horrific human rights violations, where horrific, terrible, tragic things were done. And we have acknowledged those things. And so we're not going to have the kind of trust that we need. We're not going to have the kind of hope that we need uh, to, to build the kind of future that most of us want if we're unwilling to acknowledge that past. And I'm hoping that the memorial can contribute to that process, give people something tangible to, to do, to see, to talk about, as we lift up the power of truth-telling. And I really do believe in the power of truth-telling. I think uh, the truth can set us free, uh, but we haven't done a very good job of truth-telling in this country when it comes to our history of racial inequality. Amen to all that. One of the reasons Tyler and I and our listeners love to listen to you is because as you speak about uh, issues of mass incarceration, criminal justice, uh, memorials, things like that, we can hear the language of faith. And it's clear that you're a person of faith and, and, and that actually impacts your work. And I was hoping you could kind of just unpack that for us. How does your belief system uh, affect your mission and your calling and the way you do your work? Well, I think that we can't achieve the change that we want to achieve if we are unwilling to believe things we haven't seen. Uh, and mm. and what faith has done for me is persuade me that just because I haven't seen it doesn't mean that it can't be done. 
you know, I grew up in a poor community and I, I never met a lawyer until I got to law school. Uh, but when the preacher said, now you can be anything you want to be. Uh, and if you put your faith in God, you can get there. I believed it. And mm. that sense of believing things that we haven't seen is what, you know, my faith sort of oriented me to. And I, and, and each day, each week, each month, I'd have that experience. I'd have that reality made true. And so, yes, I, I actually think that, that we have to have hope to create a new world. And our hope has to be grounded in something. And I feel fortunate that I have a kind of hope that is grounded in this faith. I mean, I do believe that hopelessness is the enemy of justice. And justice prevails where hopelessness persists. Uh, and yeah. if we're not willing uh, to believe things we haven't seen and find a way to truly embrace it, we're not going to be able to do the things that, that need to be done. And, uh, you know, I, I feel really uh, privileged to have grown up around people who taught me the power of faith, who taught me the power of believing these things. And, and uh, you know, when I've been crushed and beat down and overwhelmed, and there have been plenty of times like that, I've been able to comfort myself, uh, you know, because in the scriptures you read uh, that even in those moments when you feel overwhelmed, uh, the scripture says, you know, my grace is sufficient. Uh, yes. My power is made perfect in weakness. And I've taken to heart uh, when Paul writes about when I am weak, then I am strong, because there are moments when you feel incapable of meeting the challenge, but that's when grace will lift you up. And I've been lifted up. I tell people, ask me, well, how do you do what you do? I said, I do it by God's grace. There's no other answer I can give. Mm. And I think for me, it just creates an orientation. Uh, I don't hate anybody. And I feel blessed by that. I really do. I feel like I, even though I'm oppositional to a lot of the things, I'm working against people sometimes who seem so provoked by what we are trying to do. You know, I represent people, children, and mentally ill people, and some of them have done bad things. And when you stand up for them, a lot of people get angry. But I feel really blessed that even in that process, I don't, I really don't hate anybody. I feel, <laughs> I feel grace has uh, have allowed me to see the possibility of creating something better in every community, in every situation. And I feel, I feel really blessed by that. I, you know, as a musician, I grew up, as I said, playing in the church. And in my church, when I was a little kid, they didn't let me play in the main service. I had to play in the testimonial <laughs> service. <at first. laughs> come on, come and, on. You know, and uh, the testimonial service, people would come in, they'd give their testimonies, then they'd start singing. They might start singing in one key and end up in another key. So you had to learn <laughs> some things. And I remember being there, uh, you know, during these devotions, and people would give these testimonies. And I remember these older women of color would come in, and sometimes they'd have heartbreaking testimonies. They'd talk about not having enough food to feed their family or about children who are being mistreated or family members that had been taken away, and they would give these heartbreaking testimonies. But in my church, after you finished your testimony, you'd start singing, wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. Yes. Mm, and there was yes. in that statement, that affirmation, this capacity, this belief that we could do the things that had to be done uh, to overcome. During the 50s and 60s, they sang, we shall overcome. And that's a statement of faith. It's a statement of belief. And so, yes, I feel really blessed by that. And um I, I, you know, it's, I feel, I feel grateful that God has given me a, a task, a role, a job uh, that I can be excited about, that I can be energized by. Uh, yes, I'm broken by it, by, by, by it sometimes. I'm overwhelmed by it sometimes, uh, but I'm uplifted. I have moments of joy that I could not compare to anything else that the wealthiest people on the planet might achieve, and, and that for me is a real blessing. And I think. 
what excites me is when people of faith take their faith and they go into difficult places and they and they act on that faith and mm. share with those who are being abused and neglected and excluded and they make that faith come to life and and I'm a witness that when you do that there is a reward there is an energy there is a richness uh to living that uh, that you cannot you cannot walk away from and 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 I feel really blessed by that understanding yes yeah, Yes, he said he's a witness, Jamar. I love that. I love that. I love that. <laughs> now, now, I have to ask you this. You you mentioned in one interview, you said, our religious culture has not followed Dr. King the way that they should. Um, that's a very strong statement, especially considering the ways in which the evangelical culture and the Black church sometimes see differently and have different perspectives. Um, and church on on the margin seems to be a different conception, a different experience, a different vitality. What are the ways in which our overall American religious culture, maybe even the black church now, isn't following Dr. King the way that that they should? Well, I, I do think that we have become a bit um, critical. I mean, we have, we articulate norms, moral norms, faith norms, and we throw them away if the candidate that's going to protect our political interests and economic interests and social interests uh, violates those norms. So we're not actually evaluating people based on their character, their faithfulness, their integrity, uh, their representation of the kind of leadership that we embrace within the church. We're electing them because of what they're going to do for our taxes and what they're going to do for sustaining who has power and who doesn't. And I think that really is an abdication uh, of faith. And, and, you know, we've seen this throughout. You know, the part of the church that said slavery was okay because they were slave owners, uh, it's going to have to answer for that. The part of the church that said, oh, we can go to the lynching and celebrate the lynching, even though the Bible says thou shalt not kill, it's going to have to answer for that. The part of the church that said, you know, segregation is not that bad. Uh, let those people just keep stay in their own places. There is going to be an accounting for that. And we're living at a time where we have a part of the church that says, don't worry if our leaders are abusing women or taking advantage of people or taking from the poor to give to the rich, that's not relevant in our faith. And I want to say it's not just following Dr. King. It's not following Jesus. It's not following the Gospels. It's not following the Scriptures that have put us on this planet, in this place, to be stewards of the things that we hold dear. And so I do think we have to begin answering these hard questions. Uh, you know, I, I just think it's not sufficient uh, to separate our faith from how we act uh, when we're dealing on political issues and social issues and cultural issues. And even within the black church, I think that there are challenges that we have to meet. You know, uh, black evangelicals, black Christians, we have more cars, we have more homes, we have more wealth, we have more Talk opportunities. About it than we had 50, 60 years ago, and it's as if those cars, our wealth, those opportunities have separated us from the calling to serve, hmm. uh, to stand next to the poor and the excluded and those who are abused. Uh, we don't go to the jails and prisons. We don't feed the hungry. We don't visit the sick. And I think that's an indictment of our faith. And what I would say is if those cars and, those, and that wealth and those opportunities are keeping you from being the kind of Christian you're called to be, you've got to ask some hard questions about whether you're going to keep the cars and the wealth and, and give away your, your soul, your, your, the things that matter. And I, I do worry that if we said, oh, it's time to march, it's time to protest, it's time to, 
to, to insist on change, we'd have a harder time today than we did 60 years ago, not just because the issues have changed a little bit, but because we have too much that we want to hold on to. Uh, in my family, we didn't have a lot to hold on to. So when somebody said it's time to fight for, for education or fight for voting rights, people were ready to fight. And I think it's just one of the things that we haven't dealt with as honestly as we need to. I, I love that scripture that says, to whom much is given, much is required. And, you know, in, in the black church, we have, to, we have to think more critically about what that means. And uh, I, I sometimes get challenged, and I'll go into my office, and I'll look out the window, and I'll think about the people who are trying to do what I'm trying to do today 60 years ago. And what they had to say 60 years ago is, my head is bloody but not bowed. Yes. I've never had to say that. And, you know, if, if they, had, they did so much more with so much less, it implicates me, and it makes me feel like I've got to do more, I've got to say more, I've got to fight harder. And I think the church is in a similar situation. We now have wealth and power and influence and TV stations and resources uh, that Dr. King and his cohort could never have imagined. And the question becomes, what are we going to do with that platform? What are we going to do with that influence and, 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 and uh, power? And I hope we'll do with it what God calls us to do with it, which is to help the poor, to lift up those who have been excluded, to stand with the disfavored and the neglected, to visit those who are incarcerated and condemned. And it's in that that I think we can find real joy and real meaning in our faithfulness. But if we hide behind you know, these edifices, these, these buildings, and we act as if what happens in the political space and social space and economic space is of no concern to us, I think it really does create a kind of separation that will make us like those Christians that were silent about slavery and silent mm. about lynching and silent about segregation. Wow. My we goodness. got a preacher on the mic. <laughs> you were preaching when you were playing that piano. You were, you were preaching when you were playing that piano. I know right. it. Y'all are edging me on. That's what's going on on this hey. conversation. <laughs> This is great. I mean, speaking of, of, of platforms and influence, dream for a minute. If you had infinite resources for Equal Justice Initiative or whatever endeavor you wanted to put it toward, what would you do? I mean, if nothing was holding back, holding holding you back in terms of resources yeah. or snow or anything, yeah. what would that look like? Well, well, we would do two things. I would expand this effort at creating truth-telling in our nation. I just think everywhere you go in America, you should be required to confront the history of our country. You know, half the states in this country use native words in the names of the state, but we're absolutely silent about that legacy. And I would want to revive a consciousness that causes us to think differently about what we should be doing, what we should be saying and committing ourselves to uh, addressing that, that legacy of bias and discrimination so that we get to a point where our children aren't burdened with presumptions of dangerousness and guilt. The second thing I would do is I would, I would try to end uh, mass incarceration. I want to reduce the prison population in this country by half. We went from 300,000 people in jails and prisons in 1972 to 2.3 million people in jails and prisons today. We've got 6 million people on probation and parole, 70 million Americans, uh, with criminal arrest history, uh, 646% increase in the number of women sent to prison over the last 20 years. 70% of the women we put in jails and prisons are single parents with minor children, which means that these children get displaced and their lives get disrupted. And half the people we have in jails and prisons are not a threat to public safety. Uh, they're there for drug addiction and drug dependency. And we could have said that addiction and dependency is a health problem, not a crime problem, and use the healthcare system to help people recover. But we said, no, those people are criminals. And so what I would love to do 
is to reduce the prison population. We, we, we went from $6 billion in spending on jails and prisons in 1980 to $80 billion last year. And I would like to reduce the prison population, get that $40 billion back, and then I'd like to invest it in communities where people are struggling, where people don't wow. have enough food to eat, where people don't have adequate housing, where people aren't getting the education they need, where people don't get the services they need for disabilities and illness, and and really commit to creating uh, the kind of society that we've long talked about and wrote about and heard about, but not really lived, not experienced. That would be my dream. That would be my vision if I had those kinds of resources. And even without those resources, it's still my same dream. It's still mm-hmm. my same vision. It'll take a little bit longer, and it may it'll be a lot harder. But I think we, you know, if anything, I've been taught to to dream big, to to mm-hmm. think big about what we can and should accomplish uh, in this life, and certainly in this country where uh, where we are surrounded by so much greatness and so much uh, opportunity. Uh, it would be a sin to not want more think more, dream more, aspire for more, uh, something that gets us closer to true equality and justice for all. Well, we know he can make a way out of no way. Yes, he um, can. Yes, he can. But sometimes he, he, he gives you help. And, and, and yeah. we don't, as uh, believers, have to do it all by ourselves. And so That's just right. as we close out here, you know, we're not all lawyers. We're not all um, uh, on the front lines in the courts. But what can we do? What can the sort of average everyday uh, American Christian listener do to support you in, in, in that vision you've just laid out? Well, I appreciate that. Uh, I urge everyone to go to our website, which is eji.org. We have multiple ways for you to become active in this work. I mean, obviously, people can contribute to the work financially, but more than that, they can get the information that we make available. They can share it with their churches, their neighbors, their friends, uh, their families. Uh, We produce a lot of content that is designed to help people think more honestly about these issues, more critically about these issues. And then the second thing uh, that people can do is they can get proximate to the poor in their spaces. We have a lot of people who are told, if there's a bad part of town, stay as far away from that bad part of town as possible. I actually believe as believers, we are called to go into the bad parts of town, Mm -hmm. to stand next to those who have been excluded and neglected, the poor and the abused, getting proximate to those who suffer those who are incarcerated, those who have been condemned, for me, is how we find our power. I think there really is power in proximity. Mm -hmm. Uh, We sing these songs in the church near the cross, at the cross, and there's a reason why uh, the songs urge us to get closer to that moment of suffering where there was such agony and blood, but there was also triumph and and, and redemption and resurrection. Mm-hmm. I think it's true for us. We've got to get closer to the people in our communities that are suffering, who are lost, who are neglected, who are abused. And we've got to make proximity a priority. And finally, I think what people can do is, is to choose to do things that are uncomfortable. Because the truth of it is, is that we can't advance justice in this country if we are only willing to do the things that are convenient and comfortable. I've done some research on this. We have never been able to achieve great change, great progress, uh, by only doing what's convenient and comfortable. Progress comes, uh, achievement comes, uh, justice comes. When we do inconvenient and uncomfortable things, there was nothing convenient Mm -hmm. or comfortable about the civil rights movement Mm -hmm. or about the abolitionist movement or the anti-lynching movement. Mm -hmm. And the same is going to be true for us. And I think because we're human 
and we're biologically and psychologically programmed to do what's comfortable, we have to make a choice to do what's uncomfortable. And I think the scriptures affirm that choice. Uh, you know, and, you know, in Micah, that you read what does the Lord require, he uses to, 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 to walk humbly, to love God, to do justice. This yes. calling to do justice is very real. And I think we have to embrace that. And that, for me, means being willing to do things that are uncomfortable and inconvenient, but are necessary uh, to make the love of God real in the lives of people who have been experiencing injustice and inequality uh, for far too long. Wow. Well, Mr. Brian Stevenson, this has been a treat. This has been a joy. And I think I can speak for Jamar and the rest of our listeners as well when we say your work has deeply impacted us. It has deeply influenced our passion for justice. You not only have our tangible support, but you have our intangible prayers as well that you would continue to to fight on, that you would continue to keep the faith and you would continue uh, to push to beat that, that drum of justice because it is working, sir. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And bless you both for all you do. I appreciate your witness, your, your programming, and, and your support. So thank you very, very much. We want to thank Mr. Brian Stevenson for joining us here on this episode of Pastor Mike. You can follow his work at EJI.org. That's EJI.org. You can also pick up his best-selling book, Just Mercy, wherever books are sold. We want to invite you to support the podcast tangibly here at patreon.com forward slash Pastor Mike with the P and the M capitalized. You can also follow the podcast at at underscore pass the mic on Twitter, and you can join our private Facebook group as well under pass the mic. Um, we want you guys to continue to tweet at us and give us more ideas about amazing guests and conversations that you want to have and follow the witness of black Christian collective at the witness bcc.com. Our producer is the award-winning Bo York of Pottery.com, and on behalf of my co-host, the president of the Witness of Black Christian Collective, Jamar Tisby, I'm Tyler Burns. We'll see you guys next time on Pass the Mic. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.